Great. Thank you, Eugene. Do keep that open. We'll look at that together in the next few minutes as we are in this next little section of Acts in this series in the first six chapters of Acts. Let's pray, shall we, as we look at that and ask God to open it and reveal himself to us through this. Thank you, Lord, for your word. And as as we've just heard that reading so much about the Lord Jesus, we pray that um, it may be his name, the name of of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, um, which uh, is not only um, spoken uh, for us tonight, but which becomes perhaps more fully real um, in all its glory. And may the name of Jesus and faith in him uh, be at the centre of our hearts and thoughts tonight and always. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, last weekend, um, I managed to persuade Carol to come with me to an event which probably had more kind of compelling attraction for me as a bit of a history nerd than for Carol. Yep, we went to the exhibition of historic Bibles in the forum last weekend. Um, I know, you're sorry you missed it now, I can see that, only for one weekend. Some of these were hundreds of years old, so you know, it was, for me, fascinating looking at them. Um, some of the Bibles, to my surprise, had been loaned to the exhibition by a Christadelphian um, gathering, church. Uh, Christadelphians, you might know a little bit about them. Um, they gave me, as, as we left, they gave us an invitation to an event, which to all extents looks like a kind of come and explore Christian faith invitation. But actually, they're not Christians. Um, they believe that Christ is a brother, Christadelphian, that's what it means, uh, but not the Son of God. So they don't believe the Trinity, they believe that God the Father is one. Um, so I guess we'd call them a, another religion, a, a sect, really. But it reminded me that they, they had these Bibles that clearly they treasured, and presumably read, that it's possible, isn't it, to read the Scriptures even, but still to be really very confused about who Jesus truly is, and about, of course, why he's come. Why did he come? And taking us back to Acts and to the writer Luke, um, he writes his gospel, he writes the book of Acts, his second book. He wrote, he told us in chapter 1 of his gospel, that we might know the certainty of the things we've been taught. That's why Luke and Acts were written. That we might know who Jesus is, for sure, and why he's come, for sure. Um, and in Acts so far, we've seen in chapter 1, chapter 2, the word about Jesus, the message is spreading as Jesus said it would, from uh, Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And we saw last time in Acts chapter 2 that the church is given birth through that word, the message of Jesus, and through the powerful gift of the Spirit poured out upon us, his people. So those two things, the presence of the Spirit, the power of the message, give birth to the church, united in faith, and bold with its message, as Peter is in today's reading. Bold. Verse 13, I think, is the key verse for this chapter, um, where, where Peter explains what's going on with the miracle and with what he then says. He says, this is about Jesus. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, our, our forefathers, has now glorified his servant Jesus. And glorified means um, he, he's raised him from the dead. He's put him on the throne so that we could see who he truly is, that he might reign over everything. So the book of Acts, this passage, is all about how God has raised Jesus, put him on the throne, and how we as human beings are called, invited, if you like, to respond. 
Two sections in this chapter, um, and if you're using the Church Bible, um, it it broke it up very helpfully for us to do that. Verses 1 to 10, which is the amazing sign of the healing of this um, lame man. And then 11 to 26, the persuasive speech of Peter. So the amazing sign, the persuasive speech. We'll look at those two. The amazing sign, first of all, verses 1 to 10. In the model church at the end of Acts 2, as we've seen, the apostles performed, Luke tells us, many wonders and signs. It's the word signs. And here is Luke's first example. You might have thought, well, I wonder what they were. Well, here's one. Next chapter, Luke 3, Peter and John walk into the temple and a lame man is healed through faith in Jesus. That's a great, dramatic story, isn't it? You know, he's lying there. He's, we, we learn later in Acts he's been there all his life. He's probably 40 plus. So, you know, pretty elderly. Never walked in his life. Um, you know, a pitiful sight, isn't he? Bound to be. Lying there, probably in poverty. No way of supporting himself. Um, by, ironically, by the gate called Beautiful, this pitiful sight. Um, and Peter and John walk through the gate going in to pray. Um, you know, as it were, going back to that kind of daily custom, and he calls out to them. Uh, of course, he's, he's begging, he wants money from them, you know, so Peter and John, um, rather than doing what you know, we might do and saying, oh, you know, sorry, no change, Peter says, you know, he says, look at me, and then he says, I have no silver or gold, but what I have, I give you. And verse 6, he says, In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And he reaches out his hand and the man begins to, just imagine, he begins to feel muscles growing where there weren't any before and stiff joints that have never moved beginning to loosen. Um, And and he feels himself beginning to rise and Peter takes him and helps him but then he feels the strength coming in his legs and next thing he knows he's, he's halfway up. Peter lets go of him and he's standing. And he can't believe it. And he, it says, doesn't it, he begins to walk and even begins jumping, leaping around the edge of the temple there uh, in, in complete excitement. Because you know, here is someone that's discovered what it's like to be able to move your legs and to stand and, and even to jump. It's, it's like a kind of newborn lamb you know, springing around the field because it's just enjoying being able to do that. Uh, and Luke gets almost kind of carried away here. It's quite repeats himself. He says, he jumped to his feet, verse 8. He began to walk. He went with him to the temple, walking. And you kind of think, well, you've said that already. And jumping, and you think, well, you've said that already too. But Luke's so excited by the joy of this moment. The joy that God has brought into this man's life when he had not expected it through the name of Jesus Christ. And the watching crowds um, are probably... Watching, they're watching, certainly we're told with amazement, it's an amazing sign, this. They had not seen anything like this before. Astonishing. But they also, I'm sure, watching, thinking, ooh, Isaiah 35, there's a, there's a, prov- a promise that in, in the new creation, what does it say in Isaiah 35? The lame shall leap like a deer. How interesting. Prophecy being fulfilled. And so here's this extraordinary, amazing miracle. And maybe some of us here tonight find this quite hard to believe. We kind of think, I, I can't accept that, you know, scientifically. That kind of thing just doesn't happen. And I understand that. You know, Carol and I, were, we were medics ourselves. Um, it does seem humanly an unlikely miracle. 
But can we just say two things in defense of Luke? He's writing, remember, he's a doctor. He would not write this kind of thing lightly, and he told us back in his gospel that he's researched everything carefully from the beginning, going to the eyewitness sources. The people that were there at the temple that day have told Luke about it. It's not making this up. And the other thing is, he's writing, Luke believing in a creator God that's made everything that we see in the universe. We sang about that earlier. Everything. And put it this way, if on other grounds, you'll have to ask them about what they are later, but if on other grounds we believe that there is a creator God that made us, it's not then difficult, is it, to believe in a God that, having made everything, could give this man some strong muscles and some flexible joints for the first time. Is it? Not difficult if you believe in a creator God. So, this is a sign. Uh, chapter 4, verse 16 of Luke. Luke's got a, a kind of a theme of signs that the apostles were doing. 4.16, Luke calls this miracle, looking back at it, a notable sign. Now, it's an important one, this one. And, of course, the question of the sign is, you know, what's it there for? Um, it has a purpose, this sign. You know, that stop sign at the end of the road before you hit the, the main road, that's there for a reason, isn't it? You're meant to look at that and respond to it. This is here for a reason, And Peter has actually shown us the reason for the sign. What does the sign mean in verse 6? In the words he used, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. This is a sign that's about the mercy and power of Jesus. It's about him. It's a sign of who he is. And, of course, the, the healing happens by the power of Jesus... In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. It happens because God's glorified Jesus. That was, remember, verse 13, the key verse. God's glorified Jesus, so he has this power. And it happens because the man, in faith, responds to that power. Faith in the name of Jesus. Now, because Jesus Christ, um, in our culture, it might be like a swear word, it sounds almost like a, a name. It's actually a title. Jesus Christ. Jesus was his name, the Saviour. Christ is a title, it could be translated the Messiah, or the Anointed One, or the Christ, the King. Um, And this chapter, Peter's speech, is full of names, titles for Jesus. And I've I've stuck them on the screen there, so that if you're taking notes, you can jot them down. Um, But Jesus Christ, we saw it in verse 6, Peter refers to that twice later on. God will send the Christ or the Messiah. Um, and the Christ or the Messiah has been kept in heaven until he returns. Jesus also, though, he's God's servant. That's mentioned twice too. That's a, a, um, a prophecy about the servant of God. Back, again, back in Isaiah, we'll come back to him. He's called Jesus the Holy and Righteous One. So again, that's a, a promise of someone to come that will be, unlike us, free from sin, utterly set apart for God and righteous. He's also called the author of life, the one that is the source, the origin of all of our life, and he's called the prophet that Moses said would come one day, the prophet from God. So all of those things are ways of describing Jesus' titles, his role in fulfillment of scripture. And that's the sign and where it's pointed to. This is Jesus. This is what we're meant to understand 
when we look at that lame man jumping around the temple that day. It means that Jesus is glorified. So, for us today, the man that's watching his wife battling with cancer, uh, with terminal illness, um, he's, he's grappling, isn't he, as we all would be, with the feelings of fear, of anxiety, of uncertainty, of loss. Um, but he can do that, nonetheless holding on to the fact that whatever happens, Jesus has been glorified. He is still Christ, servant of God, prophet, author of life. And even in this life, if we don't necessarily find ourselves jumping around in joy and praise of God all the time, if sometimes miracles like these don't come our way, we can know that one day in eternity, that man's wife will be jumping and praising God for his resurrection and life he's given. You see, we're called, aren't we, to faith in the same Jesus Christ of Nazareth that that lame man put his faith in. We're called to just the same faith. Because one day we will praise God with him in glory too. So one more question before I go on to part two, this one. So can you and I expect this sort of miracle today? Does God do this kind of thing still? Now there are two wrong answers to that question, I think. Two wrong answers. Here's the first one. Yes. Yes, full stop. You know, that we should just go on seeing signs and wonders like those in Acts. I don't think that we should expect that. Um, Luke uses the words here, signs and wonders, and he almost always links it to what the apostles were doing. And they're very particular, these things. They're signs that Jesus is glorified and that the apostles are giving us the authentic message about Jesus. So the signs, like this one, are particularly there to tell us that the authentic message is the one the apostles are preaching, that we can trust them. They're signs of who Jesus is and the apostles' authority. So we shouldn't demand the same kind of sign today. I think that's the way Luke's using that word, signs and wonders. Um, you see, the primary way today that the church shows the world that Jesus is glorified, that, you know, that we point people to Jesus, that we're a sign, is, again, if you read Acts, it's in the love and unity that we show each other. That's the primary way others see Jesus in us. However, I said there's another wrong answer, and that's the answer, no. You know, that God never heals today. In fact, shouldn't this passage encourage us to pray for healing for those um, with, with emotional, physical, uh, or indeed spiritual illness of all kinds? Because it points us, doesn't it, all the way through to the fact that God is merciful and God is powerful. We should pray with confidence because of the God we find it, because of Jesus. God has not stopped, I don't think Acts tells us anywhere, that God has stopped doing miracles, answering prayer, even if the signs and wonders of the apostles, perhaps, um, were particularly done by them. So there's that amazing sign. And it leads Peter, as the crowds are gathering around, 
Luke says they were running to find out what had happened and see this man jumping up and down in the temple. And Peter seizes the chance to preach about Jesus with this persuasive speech from verse 11 to 26. Um, Peter has the crowds running up in wonder, saying, wow, you guys are amazing for healing them. And Peter says, no, no, it's, it's really not about us. He completely resists the temptation to make it about him and points to Jesus. He says, why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk, verse 12. Why do you stare at us? And then he gives us this persuasive speech all about Jesus. And all the way through, what Peter's doing is he's pointing them to God, pointing us to God, and to what God has done in Jesus. All the kind of, the action, the verb words here, are God as the subject. God's done this. So um, just quickly, again, we'll run through them. They're on the screen there. God has, verse 13, glorified Jesus. We've seen that. Raised him, put him on the throne. He's king. Um, Verse 15, he's raised Jesus, even though we killed him. In fact, Peter's really very challenging there. He says, four different ways. He says, you disowned him. In fact, he says that twice. You handed him over. Um, You killed him, in fact. But God raised him. So he's raised him. He's healed this man through the name of Jesus, through faith in the name of Jesus. That's verse 16. We've seen that already. God's healed this man through faith in Jesus. Then verse 18. God has fulfilled everything he promised, he prophesied in the scriptures through sending Jesus. And he unpacks that a bit more. Um, But we've seen that one of the prophecies was that God's servant would come and suffer to give his life for others. Isaiah 53 is probably the best place to go and have a look if you want to dig more on that, Isaiah 53. But then he says in verse 19 that it's through that suffering of Jesus that God offers, if you look down at verse 19... Um, the washing, the wiping away of sins, forgiveness. He offers times of refreshing and the fulfillment of all his promises, restoring everything when Jesus, the Messiah, comes again. That picture of sins being wiped out in verse 19, it's a great little picture, isn't it, of, of how precious It is to have sins forgiven through Christ because God fulfills his promise. In the film, the BFG, there's there's a friendly giant character who's a giant, but he's a friendly giant. Um, And he he takes Sophie off and he shows her lots of different kinds of dreams that people experience, you know, good ones, as it were, and bad ones. And the bad ones, the nightmares, if you like, um, one of them, he says, is the nightmare in which you see all you've done and... There is no forgiveness. The nightmare is when you see all you've done and there's no forgiveness. And you know, that's very subtle. That's absolutely spot on. Having our sins wiped away, forgiveness, is perhaps the most precious thing that we can experience at the hand of Jesus. Sins wiped away, times of refreshing, uh, that probably refers particularly to the present, to moments, experiences of spiritual refreshing, 
in what can be the, the toughness, the barrenness of human life. So it could, particularly moments of experiencing forgiveness again, knowing ourselves cleansed and right with God. And then in the future, restoration, to restore all things. Peace, eternal life, forgiveness in eternity, the presence of Christ face to face. So, I don't know if you've been on a hot Norfolk beach on a scorching day. That's right, these days are coming back, aren't they? Um, but you know, that, that feeling of, of um, I'm so hot, I just have to have a drink, that kind of craving, the thirst, and then the feeling when someone gives you a kind of cold glass of water and you, you just you sip it. That, that's what Peter means here. Moments of refreshing in the middle of life that point us to the restoration of all things when Jesus comes again. So God has fulfilled all he promised, all of what I've just described. That's what God's promised and fulfills in Christ. Um, And then he says, lastly, he sent Jesus to bless us and turn us back to himself. He sent Jesus, because he's done all that now, he's glorified him to call us back. Verse 26, when God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you, that's to the Jewish nation, to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. Um, He's described how Jesus, the one that God sent, was the prophet that Moses had foretold, one that would speak God's words again and, and be listened to. He's the servant of whom the prophet spoke. He's the offspring even of Abraham, the seed of Abraham that God would bless the nations through. He's all of that. And see what Peter's doing here? In his persuasive speech, he's demonstrating Jesus fulfilled everything God said he would do. That's why God glorified him. That's why his name has the power to heal this man and to save any of us. So Peter gets very direct at the end of his speech here. He's saying, look, um, God's promised this. We're the eyewitnesses. We saw the resurrection. We're witnesses that God, is, uh, God has raised Jesus. Now is the time, therefore, he says, to listen. The prophets come. Let's listen to his words. Now is the time to warn you, he says, not to reject his words, lest you're destroyed. And so, in verse 19, there's that really direct, urgent invitation. This is kind of where we finish looking at this passage tonight. Verse 19, Peter says simply, repent and turn to God. That's where he's going with this message. All of this stuff about who Jesus is and fulfilling the scriptures, glorified by God, he says, therefore repent. Get right with him now. You know, we've killed him, God raised him, so we need to get right with him. That's the gist of it, isn't it? We've killed him, God raised him, we need to repent. Repenting means changing my mind in order that the direction of my life might be changed. It's a change of mind that leads to a change of life direction. Stopping going my way away from God, ignoring him, denying him, and instead choosing to follow him and be obedient to him. When Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to his church door, the first one, actually, of those theses said this, all of life is repentance. 
All of life is repenting. And what he meant by that is that um, repentance is, is not just something we kind of do as a ritual once when we become a Christian, that's it, or even every Sunday, though confession is a good thing. It's a life directed towards God instead of away from him. You know, so someone who's following Jesus at school or at uni, maybe you know, that might be, if it's you, the need to turn away from the temptation to follow the crowd all the time. In whatever area, relationships, um, drink and so on. Going God's way instead. Someone who's a parent maybe, repenting of the constant desire to idolise or to control our children. And to go God's way as a parent instead. For someone in, just in working life, a man or a woman. The need to repent of being ambitious for popularity, for promotion, for luxuries in life, instead of being ambitious for God's purposes. All of life is repentance. And so where does it leave you and me if all of life is repentance? Peter says, repent and turn to God. Well, I think for some of us, we have these kind of alternatives, don't we? Other ways that we're going to live our lives than repentance, than turning towards God. One is to say, I don't need forgiveness. It's kind of a way of saying, um, faith should be all about feeling good about myself. And this gospel that Peter's preaching here um, about how we've sinned and we need to turn back from God and be rescued from our wicked ways, now that's all kind of negative stuff. We don't want that. Peter says, doesn't he, um, the only gospel that's truly saving, in fact, the only gospel that helps us to become truly good and to feel truly good has to start with recognising that I've gone away from God and I need the saviour, I need to repent. Another story is the kind of I'll choose my own way story. Uh, you know, this, it's great that you've got Jesus, um, but I think we can't be very sure about you know, who's really got all this faith stuff right. I'll find my own way. A gospel that talks about Jesus being the only way to God cannot be true, we say. And Peter says, no, the whole human race has turned against God and the only way back to him is through repentance and faith in the name of Jesus. There's the I don't need God's help story. I'll kind of do it my way. I can save myself. Human beings are basically good, we say. Jesus is a great example to us. But actually, I've pretty much got the capacity to live a pretty moral life too. Or even, um, I know that we can make a better world if you just give us time and give technology a chance to get there and do it for us. So the kind of, we don't need God, we can save ourselves story. And Peter says... If you notice that that last verse there, we don't even have the power to turn back to God. Jesus has to come to turn us back and save us. Only he can save me. And yet he has, he's graciously atoned, paid the price on the cross for me. Peter's telling us everything that Luke wants us to know about the certainty of faith, who Jesus is, why he came and died and rose and was glorified. And I think to sum that up, there are two things that you and I 
may want to do by way of response. One is to know the certainty of the truth about Jesus. And by that I mean, check this out. Look into this more. If you're someone who's sceptical, or for this is, this is a new thing for you, and you haven't got that confidence in Jesus yet, or even you are far from believing yet, get a copy of Luke's Gospel, perhaps, or borrow a Bible and read through Acts, and look at this Jesus. And uh, it may even be that tonight there's someone here, and, and you've been on the edge of faith, and something's been holding you back. Maybe those stories you looked at, the alternative stories, that were very persuasive, and you've seen what Peter has to say, this persuasive speech about who this Jesus really is, well, tonight might be the night for you to turn in faith to Jesus. And if that is you, then you know, do join, I'll pray a prayer in a second. Do join in with that prayer in your heart. And do, at the end of the service, turn and talk to someone near you. Ask them maybe to pray for you as you make that step of faith. Repent and turn to God, says Peter. And then for all of us here, let's spread the word with boldness in the way that Peter does. He seizes the opportunity, doesn't he, to talk about Jesus, to talk about how Jesus um, is not someone that came from nowhere. He fulfills the scriptures. He's thoroughly credible. He's witnessed to by those that saw him. And he's inviting us, all of those around us, those for whom we pray, to respond to him by turning and believing. Let Acts give us boldness this week to pray for an opportunity to be a sign, to point someone to Jesus. You see, some let Peter's speech with fury. If you read in the first few verses of chapter 4, Peter and John spend their first night in prison as a result of this speech because he talks about resurrection and the authorities don't like it. This is a new thing, this is an unsettling thing. But verse 4 says, many... Chapter 4, verse 4, many who heard their message believed. We should be encouraged by that. This is a powerful message. Many believed. In fact, you know, another couple of thousand. If you and I will seize opportunities to point others to Jesus this week and, and boldly show them how persuasive Jesus is when we open our hearts to him, what could the Lord do through us to spread his word across our city? Let's pray. If you are someone this evening that has perhaps drifted away from faith, or perhaps you've been on the edge of faith looking in and um, longing to know how to know Jesus and how to experience forgiveness and hope, do join in with this prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for coming from the glory of heaven to live as one of us. Thank you for showing us the glory of God in your human life and especially for dying on the cross, where we, through our sins, placed you. Thank you that in God the Father's power you were raised to new life and are now glorified. I come to you now in sorrow 
for my sins, but in faith. But in love you forgive and atone. And in power you give your spirit. I receive your spirit now to begin a new life with a new heart. Strengthen me to live for you, to live in your direction from now on, and to speak boldly to others of your goodness. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.